Welcome to Nostalgia. Are you feeling nostalgic today? Yes! That's me in the picture, with me on the pants down, pulling on me. Welcome to another episode of Nostalgia, where we relive our experiences as two spotty, lank, long-haired young men living in a small, mysterious village on the east coast of Ireland, where we came across, perhaps, some of the greatest rock albums of all time. Today we're taking a look at the debut album from Skid Row, released on January 24th, 1989 on Atlantic Records. This sold 5 million copies in the US and was produced by Michael Wagoner, who also worked on Porno Graffiti from Extreme, Breaking the Chains from Dokken, and the Black Cat single from Janet Jackson. Amongst others, Accept, Restless and Wild, Fast as a Shark, that was Michael Wagoner, Zer Good. And you remember Janet Jackson, do you? Black Cat, now that you're living on the edge, not afraid to die. You remember her better than I do. That was the Michael Wagoner effect. The effect that he brought to Skid Row when he recorded with them at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And he was a master of the reamping and multi-amping technique. Why did I say that in a stupid voice? (laughs) 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 Yeah, Michael Wagner, a producer extraordinaire from Germany, put his hand to many an album. He mixed Master of Puppets by Italica. He made his name starting off with Accept in the early 80s. Udo Dirkschneider trying to tame his raspberry button-headed vocals. And the album Skid Row got to the heady heights of number six on the US Billboard charts. Have a listen to this. Uh, thank you for playing cool music throughout the exam period. You guys are the greatest. Yours, Leo McGrainer. Thank you, Leo. Good luck on your relief and start hand. Yeah. yeah, Skid Row, no. and it's called 18 and Life. Hey, I'm on the show here, Hannah. Um, Tom's not here. Tom's not here. Gather that. Um, okay, Tom, what do you think of 18 and Life from Skid Row? Oh, that's where all the uh, the, the super bastards go, isn't it? My mommy said to my daddy, you'll be on Skid Row for now, girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, right, Tom. Well, to the song. What do you think of it? It was a good song. It was a bit too slow for me. I started like Slayer, you know? That was a radio station that we used to listen to back when we were teenagers. An obscure local radio station in Wicklow somewhere with its weekly rock show. That's right. Unusual, unusual format. At the time. Unusual style there from the DJ. Groundbreaking, some might say. Interesting there, their thoughts on 18 and Life as they reviewed Skid Row's mega-hit single. So in preparation for this show, I did Sebastian Bach's autobiography, Little Scribbles. I was very entertained. It's funny and it's very honest, but you can understand from these tales he's coming out with it that he was a bit irritating to hang around with, like if you were in a band with him and you wanted to be kind of semi-professional. Skid Row are still going and they have a new singer and depending on when you listen to this, a recent new album. I'm not sure how it did, but they seem to be inevitably facing questions when they do a round of press that why don't they ever think of getting back with Sebastian to do some type of tour to, you know, make a bit of cash because no one's going to buy the new album. No one cares about that now these days. But Sebastian, yeah, judging by his exploits in his autobiography, he seemed like he suffered from but was never diagnosed for Tourette's. (laughs) 
But there are some good nuggets in there about the scandals of doing strange things in the rainbow with members of Guns N' Roses and Lars Ulrich selling admission tickets to watch Sebastian and Duff McKagan stoned out of their heads on qualudes, jumping up and down like a little leprechaun, as Sebastian described him. He was living the quintessential rock and roll lifestyle. He was living hard, making music, loving women, getting into fights, drinking, doing drugs. The stuff that was expected in those days. Well, I think, uh, was it Gene Simmons that pulled him to one side, tried to have a word with him and say, Listen to me, man. You're ruining your career. Also with Motley Crue at the time, they were coming out with their Dr. Feelgood album and they had been maybe one or two years sober. And they were very pissed off at Sebastian's antics. And he led drummer Tommy Lee astray with bottles of whiskey and bottles of vodka very often. You think if he was going to listen to anybody, he might listen to Gene and say, here, take a step back. You're going to ruin your career. You're going to ruin your body, everything else. One thing that he did give us that I actually never knew, it was never in the rock press at the time, was that he porked Christina Applegate. But he, he said that he didn't. He said he, he, he lay beside her. They went to sleep and snuggled only and spooned. But he didn't drive the cock in her. <laughs> Maybe that's the Canadian in him. He's very polite. I don't know. I think there's a few escapades in there where he had women tied up and, and things like that where he, he wasn't the Canadian gentleman. <laughs> he was definitely... Was borderline weird stuff. Uh, I think there was tales of him being on, on top of a, a building with Metallica on a, on a photo shoot going around on a, on a little bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was and then... the wheel came off. That was then used in, in I think, the first film called Saw. The horror movie saw. Yeah, a little fella riding around on a tricycle <laughs> with a plastic face. I can imagine it. <laughs> I just want to say before we begin this show that I have a very dear connection with Skid Row for reasons which I will make clear later. I apologize in advance for this. I didn't. That's a- okay. I didn't ask that we review Skid Row's first album. We just discussed which albums we would like to review you for did. this series. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't be telling them. So we, yeah, we just, uh, Adrian and I agreed democratically that we would review this first album by Skid Row. I was a bit wary of it because I wouldn't consider it as a classic rock album. But then again, the show isn't called classic rock albums. It's called Nostalgia. So that's fair enough. (laughs) And looking back at my diaries as a young, lank haired, spotty teenager in a faraway mystical, magical land. I wrote in on October 6, 1991, we went to Extreme in Dublin's premier concert venue, the Point Depot. And we had lots of fun and we met some nice girls. And what age were we then in 1991? I would have been 17 going 18 the following month. Yeah, it was the following month that I went to Skid Row on my own because Adrian had no money. Got no money. And I said, please, Adrian, I've bought a ticket for myself. Will you buy a ticket for yourself and then we can go ourselves? And he went, no. Why couldn't you have been a nice friend and bought me a ticket? See, there's the thing that we still have yet to Only understand. About 16 quid or something? No, this is the thing we've yet to understand. <laughs> Miserable! Spend nothing! In the 35 years of our relationship, Adrian, we've yet to understand the, the method of the madness that's here between us. There's an uh, unspoken understanding, I think. <laughs> I know you're mad. So are you. There's a force field around <laughs> your it. pocket. You've got magnets holding your pockets shut. Two main lads, so we never exchange gifts at any time. We never buy each other nothing. Actually, that's true. Let's try to amend this now. Let's tell our listenership that we will try to be better friends and we'll send each other gifts for birthdays yeah. and Christmas. Uh, it's a rule I think we should put in from the 1st of November this year. Okay. <laughs> Wanker. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, seeing as my birthday is the month before and his is the month after. 
I'll bring it back for you. 31st of October. No, wrong. Can't even get my birthday right. <laughs> no, I didn't say it was your birthday. <laughs> That's when the rules start. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's when the spending starts. Yeah, yeah. The day after. Let's go into the facts, yeah? Yes, indeed. I thought you were going off on a big story there. <laughs> Waffling on about 1992. We'll come back to it later, I said. Later. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Mom, it's the same. My missus will be home very shortly. Oh, Jesus. She'll be standing there with her hands on her hip, complaining and tutting, tutting her way through the kitchen. Listening to you talk about young ones. <laughs> I have to talk about facts every single week. It's a fact. It is a fact. Facts. Anyway, yes. Facts. Skid Row formed in 1986 in Toms River, New Jersey by bassist Rachel Bolan and guitarist Dave the Snake Sab. Oh. <laughs> facts. Dave the Snake Sabo was partially inspired to start Skid Row after losing out on the lead guitarist gig in Cinderella. Your favourite band. Right. I couldn't find any more information on that. I'm not sure how... How legitimate uh, that fact actually is. Yeah. <laughs> Judging by your like facts it. over the recent I like weeks. <laughs> I like it. Facts. Sabo and John Bon Jovi were friends and promised each other that whoever made it first would help the other. In fact, Sabo introduced John to Richie Sambora. John repaid the favour by getting them a record deal and giving them a support slot on the New Jersey tour. Richie's the man. Richie's a lovely guy. Sebastian Bach says in his autobiography that he saw Richie with a big pot belly and he said, what's that man? He thought he saw on the posters of Richie before in Metal Attack magazine that Bach used to love to read. And he now he saw him. In, <laughs> he, he thought that <laughs> Richie would be Adonis. And then he saw a big pot beer belly on him. And Richie said, hey, don't worry, man. I'll have an eight ball and then it'll all be tight Richie for tomorrow. Richie had a diet solution. Go on cocaine for a couple of days and the stomach be flat as it was before. I wonder did Hugh Jackman do that for the Wolverine? I wouldn't put it past any of the celebrities to be honest. Might try it myself. Any Charlie Charlie? <laughs> I have to talk about facts. Fact. In return for the helping hands of John Bon Jovi, they had to enter a publishing deal with John and Richie's newly established underground music publishing company, in which they waived the majority of their rights to publishing royalties. All money was paid to Mr. John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora. So it was a big public dispute after this, but eventually Richie Sambora gave his share of the money back to Skid Row. Because he's a nice guy. John Bon Jovi, however... Didn't give the money but back. I can tell why there might be a little bit of animosity between John and Sebastian. We will come to this much, much yes. later. If you don't spew out facts about this, I'll fill in that bucket. It's coming. <laughs> facts. Scotty Hill's first ever show at Skid Row was an arena date opening for Bon Jovi. Uh, tell us, Agent, who was, who was Scotty Hill? He was the guitarist, replacement guitarist for Skid Row. Facts. Skid Row was released on January 24th, 1989, as I mentioned, and two days later, the band played their first date as support on Bon Jovi's New Jersey tour at Dallas's Reunion Arena. Nothing happened until 18 and Life was released as a single, and then, to quote Scott Hill, Oh, hell broke loose, man. Fox. Did you know? No. Skid Row's original singer, Matt Fallon, left the band. They met Sebastian back at a rock photographer's wedding. Back was singing back then with Detroit's Madam X. He remained a singer until being fired in 1996. And members of Madame X went on to form Fixin. Also interviewed on that obscure rock show. Yeah. On the east coast of Ireland. That's right, by mm. those guys who were kind of a very original and novel approach to presentation. Mm. I wonder where they are now. Facts. Before releasing the album, the management paid a reported $35,000 to guitarist Gary Moore for the rights to the name of the namesake band from the 60s. 
So there was another Skid Row, and this incarnation of Skid Row were an Irish blues rock band of the late 60s and early 70s from Dublin. And they were fronted by bass guitarist Brendan Brush Shields. I saw Brush Shields when he played in our village sports complex back in the 1990s. Beret hatted bald Brush Shields, yeah. That was a him. man fond of a big, long, tall drink and tall tales too, let it be said. I met him in well, a pub one night and the guff out of that lad, you have to open all the ventilators just to be able to breathe. You were honoured there to meet the person who taught Phil Linnett to play bass. He definitely didn't hopefully tell him to speak. He was like, uh, no, no, I'm going to say anything. Don't invite <laughs> lawsuits. Is he not dead yet? Not yet, no, he's still alive. Facts. The seeds of Skid Row were planted in a garden, specifically <laughs> Garden Music State. In what is referred to as the bottle incident by fans of the band, Back was hit with a bottle thrown on stage from a crowd at a concert in Springfield, Massachusetts, where Skid Row was opening for Aerosmith on December 27, 1989. What happened was Back then proceeded to throw the bottle back, but he missed the bottle thrower and bloodied an innocent young girl instead. So he jumped into the crowd and he broke the jaw of the guy who threw the bottle. Back was arrested after the gig. Kicks and spits wearing Ben Sherman slip-ons, white socks, fags in the corner of the mouth as they lumped into you with their big raw fists. He, he was a youth gone wild. That should have been the title of his autobiography, not an 18 in life. Or I know, what a twat. <laughs> he wasn't the brightest spark. Well, he seems, an, he seems a nice guy. You have a little bit misdirected. Facts. It's just a random fact I got out of his autobiography as well. When Skid Row played with Guns N' Roses at Download, Axel was upset the gig had not gone well. While travelling back from the gig on a helicopter, Sebastian Pack feared Axel was going to genuinely jump out. Apparently the whole time he was really agitated and was fiddling with the door handle of the helicopter. Oh, if only he did. Don't be a meanie! Yeah, so that's my facts. That's it! <laughs> well, as it's not a classic rock album, it's not, it's not that well documented. A few reviews, actually, about Skid Row's debut album. Q Magazine described the album as a fusion of rock riffs and commercial hooks and proclaimed it a notable debut. Spin's Eric Davis said Skid Row was slightly different from contemporary albums by Warrant and Great White because it contained less fake gutter narratives of sluts and bad boys and instead leaned more towards Bon Jovi's earnest anthems. Robert Christgau, in his negative review, remarked how the band attempted some social commentary and was not offensively sexist, if only by heavy metal standards, jokingly saying that the disreputable women in the songs were at least characters rather than objects. A rock-hard reviewer wrote that this album is an example of how independence and originality are by no means as in demand in the US music world as the following of the success schemes established by bands like Guns N' Roses, with only a couple of good songs saving it from sad mediocrity. <laughs> So when we were young lads and listening to these seminal albums in the late 80s, we were abetted and aided by the BBC because we were able, just by a quirk of fate and radio frequencies extending over the Irish Sea in, from our mystery magical land of pixies and plonkers, all the way over to London. And we were able to pick up BBC Radio 1. And BBC Radio 1 at the time had the only rock show on a Friday night playing nationwide rock music to the masses, hosted by Tommy Vance and produced by Tony Wilson. My name is Tommy Vance and welcome to the Friday Rock Show from BBC Radio 1. Tommy Vance, the Friday Rock Show. Rock in the UK. Wafting across the Irish Sea from the BBC, <laughs> the Friday Rock Show. To enlighten us savages. To turn us into savages. 
It's arguable to say that Tommy Vance, presenter of the British Broadcasting Corporation's Radio 1 Friday Rock Show, really liked Skid Row. Not the old Skid Row, the new Skid Row. A few days ahead of the release of the Skid Row album, Tommy had a copy of it perched between his cans of Guinness, a signed photo of Bruno Brooks and a half a pack of Rothmans, as he pressed the big button on the 20th of January 1989. This is something by a band called Skid Row, not the old and famous Skid Row of years and years ago, but a new band who've been together, I think, for something like two years in the States. And this I really do rate. This is called Youth Gone Wild. It's exactly 11.30. Good stuff. Their album is absolutely... I promise you, just played you a track there called Youth Gone Wild. They're called Skid Row. The album's on the Atlantic record label. Tommy gave it the chef's kiss there. Uh, a week later, Tommy had his feet up on the mixing desk, the DT100 headphone monitors up to the last and puffing his 27th fag of the day. It was the 27th of January, 1987. <laughs> it wasn't. It was the 27th of January, 1989. <laughs> it was the 20th... It was the 27th. It was the 20th century. <laughs> hey! We'll never see it again. Give up now. It was the 27th of January, 1989. This is worth your while a listen. Oh, yes. It's 11.01 on Radio 1 FM. That was Skid Row, the American band who come out of New Jersey, a track from their debut album, which really is well worth a listen. Rattlesnake Shake was the track you heard. Played you another track from it last week. Good album. Every hour, every track on it is well worth listening to. Shake, shake, shake it for me, Tommy Vance. It seems that the whole of BBC Radio 1 was shaking in London that weekend as on Alan Freeman's rock show on Saturday night, early Sunday morning, the then 62-year-old Alan was also genuflecting around the studio at 2am. <laughs> That's right. 21 minutes to the hour of 2 o'clock this a.m. on Sunday morning. Uh, there's a five-piece band from New Jersey music lovers, very much encouraged by Bon Jovi and their management. Their name's Skid Row and they're rather devastating. Have a listen to this one, all right? And there it was. And it was rather wild, wasn't it? Skid Row there from an album from the same name there. Uh, actually, Tommy Vance played that in the Friday Night Rock Show. Well done, Thomas, all right. That was called Rattlesnake Shake. And in the meantime, I see that uh, Tesla have a brand new album out called The Great Radio Controversy, OK? Rather wild, rather devastating, OK? Up to Ra! Down with the colonists! Down with the empire! As you listen to Alan talking there, you hear him rubbing his laps ferociously. You can hear him there, it's like a big Russell <laughs> movement. He's sitting there at 2am, taking the plum out. Tommy was clutching onto the Skid Row album for dear life, hissing and scowling at producer Tony Wilson, who wanted to take it away to free up some airtime for more British bands like Bitches Sin and Witchfinder General. But Tommy held on. Tony stared at him behind the glass and said, I'll remember you. 18 and a half minutes after midnight on Radio 1 FM. Skid Row's album is rather good. Played your track for the past couple of weeks. I'd like to play you one now. This is uh, the slower side of them, if you like. The track is called I Remember You. You. Before that, you heard Skid Row from their debut album, Every Track is a Little Gem. I have stuff. Hey, you. Stuff. Now, that's not fair. As we what? were listening to that, you started to emulate a gagging reflex, sticking your fingers in your mouth. Let me ask why, why, why? Because he mentioned I Remember You, the soft, syrupy, <gasps> famous ballad from the album Skid Row. The best song on the album. <laughs> Again, as Tommy and Tony did battle over the faders of who merited inclusion on that night's show, Tommy got Tony lovely with a two-day-old cucumber sandwich to the forehead and sneakily slapped on Skid Row yet again as Tony wiped the salad cream from his eyes. Before that, you heard something from the debut album by Skid Row, which I can recommend highly because it's an excellent debut album. It's out on the Atlantic record label in the UK. 
Got to get hold of it. The track was called Youth Gone Wild. 20 minutes down to 11, the Friday Rock Show. Would Tommy continue to just amble down Park Avenue to Skid Row each week? Alas, no. He couldn't find the CD anymore. Tony took it on him! Catching Tommy sleeping during the lie back and enjoyed segment of the show, somewhere in the middle of Genesis, the Battle of Epping Forest, as drool dangled down Tommy's chin onto the pre-fade pots, Tony found the Skid Row CD in Tommy's rock satchel and subsequently hid it in Dave Lee Travis's beard. Result? No Skid Row for five whole months on the rock show! One July morning in the BBC canteen, Dave Lee Travis shared a bowl of cornflakes with Tommy, when Dave only sneezed and out flew the Skid Row CD onto the lap of Gary Davies across the table. Tommy lunged at Gary's crotch, taking the Frosties and Kellogg's with him. He grappled for the plastic box. Gary blushed and giggled. Once in his clutches, Tommy ran away, wheezing heavily down the hall. This was Friday morning, the 21st of July, 1989. You can almost hear the defiance in his voice, not wanting to say a thing, nor rant, nor enthuse about the skids, just so he could gently slip it in past Tony. Radio 1FM, it's now five minutes before 11 o'clock. My name is Tommy Vance, and this is the Friday Rock Show. That was Skid Row from their album. The track was called Midnight Tornado. Before that, you heard Blackfoot, a real anthem from back in 1978. No, Tommy, he's fell down the hole. Not wishing to push, not wishing to push his luck after Tony. Tony you wanted to be your last <laughs> I was a little, yeah. Do you have a few glasses of wine? A few shifters on the way home from the job. You know how it was. Has to be done. I couldn't find my keys. It was a Friday. It's only right. Not wishing to push his luck after Tony fined Tommy's a week pay of a cart of Rothmans and a 24-pack of Guinness, Tommy held back as much as he could, but yearning to have the British rock listenership hear the wailing banshee Sebastian back again, he caved in on the 18th of August. Tracks there from the four bands who are going to be at Milton Keynes tomorrow. Europe and let the good times rock. Vixen, Edge of a Broken Heart, Skid Row, Making a Mess, and Bon Jovi from Lay Your Hands on Me. Got a feeling tomorrow's going to be an ace event. Oh, Two weeks later, we hit September. Tommy couldn't resist playing Skid Row yet again, so much so that he had glued shut the CD tray of Player 2 in the studio two weeks earlier. The Skid Row album stuck inside. At that time, and always, the BBC had no money, so the player stayed to Tommy's delight. Unfortunately, some of the glue Tommy used seeped into the mechanism, making it only possible to play the last song that he played before. So all Tommy could do was play it again. What are you doing? Who's that? Adrian is licking a page cover of Lisa Dominique, and it's sad that I know who that is. Skid Row from their current album, they were making a mess. Cloven Hoof from their current album, which is called A Sultan's Ransom, and the track was entitled Jekyll and Hyde. Mm. Are you licking Lisa Dominique's Cloven Hoof? <laughs> Cloven Hoof! Now, love it. Tony had to bring in his own Sony CD player from home to replace the glued-up Skid Row mess as Tommy was sent on holiday to stay out of the way and got sozzled out in Spain. The old player was set fire to and dumped in landfill in Hemel Hempstead. It wouldn't be until when Skid Row's new CD single, 18 and Life, was released in November 1989 that Tommy Vance had a chance to <gasps> play them once more. November 3rd, <laughs> 1989. But that was the last time, said Tony. One more and you're out. BBC Radio 1FM, we give you more rock than any other station in the country combined. That's a track from Skid Row's album, which is still selling incredibly well. The track was 18 and Life. The album, of course, is just called Skid Row. And before that, you heard Vane. It fell upon the sleepy sexagenarian on a Saturday night. One Alan Freeman to come to the rescue. In the meantime, let's chip on to Skid Row. Absolutely tremendous smash hit in the USA for them, and rightly so too. I'm sure it's going to happen over here, taken from their current album, Skid Row, their 18 and Life. (laughs) 
And to round off the 11 plays that the BBC One Rock Jocks allowed in the year of our Lord Skid Row year of 1989, Alan Freeman wouldn't forget us. That's for sure, music lovers. Finally tonight, or this morning, should I say, with the time now at 7 minutes to the hour of 3 o'clock, time has moved around, has it not? A little Skid Row. Ah, rather lovely too from Skid Row and I remember you actually, music lovers. Friday nights and Saturday nights, we never forget you, right? That's for sure. And Eleven that, times it was played in the Friday Rock Show. Eleven times. I played it this week. It'll never be played again. It's fair to say you're not a fan. But I, let's... I'm, let's Go through my feelings. I'll express my feelings on Skid Row as we go through... Track by track. <coughs> <coughs> All right. All right. Track number one is Big Guns. This is a straight-ahead, mid-tempo rock song with a touch of glam. It has a big, dumb, powerful chorus, which is quite catchy and also has a good solo. And one of the things I noticed in their lyrics is the trick of using exaggerated fantasy female characters. And I think you might have alluded to that earlier. It was alluded to by some lads review. In Big Guns, we have She Was a Ballerina on a Subway Train, Stiletto Heels and a Candy Cane. Mm-mm. Later on on Here I Am, we have Six Foot One and Lonely dressed in spaghetti rags with her German cigarettes and designer attitude. And guess what? Three of them even get names. She was a shitload of trouble called the Subway Queen. I remember the Diesel Queen. Remember the Diesel Queen? <laughs> Not the Subway Queen. We didn't have one of those. In a locomotive that was used by CIE? I think she was good at shucking Diesel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. so Subway Queen comes from Sweet Little Sister. And there's some rhymey wimey names. Tricky Little Vicky walks along South Street. She learned her French from the boys that she'd meet. Juicy Miss Lucy, always digging on junk. She's on the corner talking trash with the punks. That was on Rattlesnake Shake. It may have been influenced by Little Richard's 50s rock and roll favourites, Long Tall Sally and Short Fat Fanny. Big Gun's one of your favourites. <laughs> <laughs> Big Gun's one of your favourites. <laughs> you like it, did you? It was a good one, wasn't it? What do you think? The intro. Do you like it? Do you think it was a good opener? Not particularly, no. no <laughs> Talk to me. No. I, do, I do like a good rock opener, as I've said on this series many a time. I like a good grand <laughs> I like a good opener, opener myself. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this one doesn't have it. It's a bit flaccid. It's bombastic. It hits the right notes. Power chords are plenty. Twin guitar noodlers. But as I will make clear during this show, that Skid Row, Skid Row wouldn't be anywhere in the ballpark of any success without that lead singer they had. That's it. The music is be the music. Painful memories. The, <laughs> track two. Uh, <laughs> track it, Adrian. Track it. Track two is "Sweet Little Sister," uh, and this is credited to Sabo and Bolin, as most of the tracks are. The riffs of the album are pretty heavy in places, and this is one of the heavier ones. It's fast tempo, really speedy riffs. And there's a touch of humour in there. Well, at least I hope it's humour. <laughs> As you'll hear from one of the lyrics, the petting's getting heavy. Got his tongue in her ear. Her friend is doing time for kicking ass on a queer. They're in a mental state and all their friends are here. Yeah, she's an angel on a mission of mercy. This was the first song that hooked me. I like the melodies. I like the chorus line. I like the swing of it all. So take me back. You bought the album or the album was given to you. You, you put the tape on. <laughs> it was given to me. Yeah, the priest used to give me albums, Bernie, <laughs> in return for penance. In other podcasts, you were, you were given some of the tapes as presents. This one I bought myself. I bought Skid Row on cassette. So you're listening to it and you're thinking, oh, big guns. Yeah, a bit bland, a bit kind of yeah. generic. And it sounds like a Warrant, Great White, Dirty Looks, Britney Fox. 
So Skid Row came in, the first song just sounded a bit generic, but the singer sounded good. And then the second song, a little bit more melody, a little bit more fun in the lyrics, bassy and melodic. I liked it. Track by track. Track three. And this one's Can't Stand a Heartache. And Bolin is credited with this one. Powerful vocals on this from Sebastian mm. Bach. I really actually like the chorus on this one. So bleeds the red, red rose. What a refrain he does. I'm rediscovering it over the last few days. This is one of the ones that got into my head. Yeah. Like those earworms. A good example of Bon Jovi and Sambora's input. That this might have been a co-written song, really. Or it might have been one of their off-cuts that was chucked out the back garden for Rachel Bolin and the lads to chew on. But I love this song. I think this is great. This is the first hit of the album for me. It wasn't released as a single, I don't think. Nope. But I liked it. Particular lyric I like. This sounds a bit sinister. Uptown, run me down under your wheels. I pray one day you know how it feels. Okay, moving on to track four. This one is Peace of Me. Another one just credited to Bolin. It's Saturday night and I'm looking for a fight. There's a nice bass intro on this, which leads into a slower tempo tune. The riffs and vocals on this give it an overall sleazy feel. The mid-tempo riff, not dissimilar in part to Enter Sandman to my ears. Sebastian Bach once asked Bon Jovi, did he want a piece of him on their New Jersey tour? The lads from both bands were, were pranking each other. One particular night, a member of Jovi's crew poured a jug of milk over Sebastian's head as he went on stage. Bach took revenge by throwing eggs at Jovi's crew and he spent the entirety of his set slagging John Bon Jovi between songs in front of the audience. How factual this is, I don't know. Before Peace of Me starts, it's just the bass and drums. And over it, Sebastian goes, All right, John Bon Jovi, why don't you come and get a piece of me? Apparently after the show, John Bon Jovi, his father, his brother, his entire crew came after back. John threw some punches even. Back gets pinned against the wall, getting threatened. Do you believe that? I do. It's in Bach's autobiography and it just rings true for me as, you know, when we were young teenagers and we loved Bon Jovi, we got into them, they were pop rocks, great saviours of the mid 80s. They couldn't have done anything wrong in our minds. And then as we've grown older and matured and we've seen how Bon Jovi has turned into a PLC, a limited liability company with businessman John at the head of the council, quite a boring, narky chap who can't sing anymore. It's good that when you hear behind the scenes how Bon Jovi acted, even then he was he's true to form. Now he's just transparent. But back then he was trying to hide behind this kind of good old boy from down home New Jersey. You know, hey, this is our town. We want to represent the kids and we want to help the kids and everybody. He just wanted to make money for himself and any which way he could and control it. But you're, you seem to be looking at it from Sebastian Bach's point of view. Yeah, I like Sebastian. Sebastian was a rebel. But the fact of it, he was on stage calling John Bon Jovi names all through his support act set. Mm-hmm. The support act that he was given as a favour from Bon Jovi. There's the thing, if you give someone a favour and then they bite your hand... Show disrespect. Is it implied that you should always show respect if someone gives you a favour? Why did the person involved give you a favour? Because they're benevolent or they're somehow trying to help you up? And how you repay that? I don't know. Does it have to be instantly repaid with thank you very much and proselytising and saying sorry and saying I'll do it any which way you want because you've helped me? Or the Sebastian back way. I think it was a bit more serious. Judging by the reaction, I think some of the stuff that he must have been saying must have been pretty bad stuff. And he was acting like a bit of an ass. I see no other reason why you'd have his father, his brother and the whole crew come out after him. This is repeated later. We'll talk about it maybe a bit later. Or it's in Kerrang later on. So, yeah, talk I about. wouldn't see it as something you could see John in a bad light. About. I mean, there's two sides to the story. Clearly. Obviously, 
that happened, but also John diddled them out of royalties. So Yeah, there was a bit of a tit and tat both ways. They're both as bad as each other. Exactly. <laughs> Let's draw a line under that. And they all had a piece of each other. Uh, one of the interesting lyrics I found on this was, I got my heels and looking pretty on a Saturday night, night, night. Is you saying that he was a bit of a Eddie Izzard? <laughs> it's strange. Do you go out on your heels on a Saturday night? Well, back then, those bands in LA and those glam rock bands of the mid to late 80s, they were all wearing chiffon scarves and high-heeled suede boots. So maybe that's what he meant. It was, yeah, but it's not as funny when you explain it like that. No. A big <laughs> six foot four. Take the humor over. <laughs> Don't take be a- the good over. You take the good over everything. <laughs> all right, peace of me. It's not a bad song. You want a piece of me? That's all it is. That was just like listen to it. Track it, Adrian. Track it. That brings us nice and neatly to track five, which is the first single we come across. It's eighteen in life, and this one is credited to Sabo and Bolin. So here we are at what for me is the centerpiece of this album, and my favourite song on it. It opens up with a slow, melancholy guitar before the plaintive vocals join in, introducing our buddy Ricky. The first verse slowly becomes more aggressive as we get into Ricky's battles, resulting from his underprivileged upbringing. Then we go into the first chorus, which is still a bit understated. And then the build continues as the second verse cranks it up, describing Ricky's drinking and wild ways. The second verse is delivered with a little more venom, and then we get to the climax of the song. This child blew a child away. This line is delivered by Sebastian Bach in a heartbreaking, angst-ridden scream, which gets me in the emotions as a big part of the reason why I love this song. And then it goes on into a soaring solo from Sabo. The song is just a straightforward tale of Ricky, who's 18, and ended up in prison for life after shooting another kid. It's a theme that would be emulated later by Pearl Jam on their 1991 mm. album with Jeremy. Jeremy Slightly younger yeah. kid and did something to his teacher. But this is a fantastic song. Incidentally, and it is interesting that he doesn't get a writing credit for this, and yet he maintains in his autobiography that those vocal melodies yeah. and that scream and the way he designs the, the melody lines yeah. of the vocals is just, that's written by him. He spent a lot of time apparently structuring the vocals, and that's what takes it to another level. It's still played to this day, it still earns plenty of royalties for Bolin and Sabo, <laughs> mostly, and Sebastian, all he can do is sit and watch on his big screen when it comes on, if it's ever on MTV. Do they play music these days? I don't know. 18 and Life. It's a classic. We talk about these albums and you might not be into Skid Row really, but this is a classic song and that's what cements the status of this album. Now I wonder, did they get help by Bon Jovi and Sambora on this one? Because it sounds like it really is like living on a prayer, just a little bit harder. Tommy and Gina making the best of it. And this one, it's about yeah, the person who couldn't make the best of it. Couldn't handle well, it. One thing's for sure, Richie and John got their money back on it, even if they did help them, mm-hmm. or if they didn't. Sabo's inspiration for the song was actually supposed to be his brother, who had come home from Vietnam. And the song is supposedly describing how it affected him, and how he would be trapped by the memories of the experience of Vietnam forever. From this seed of an idea that eventually grew into the song we know about accidental murder. In fact, in the official video, at the end, Ricky's cell door isn't closed. I was deaf wide open, but he just sits there. Encased in his own prison in life. Mm. This was released as the second single from the album and became Skid Row's biggest hit. It reached number four on the US Billboard chart and number 12 on the UK singles chart in 1989. It was also a success here in Ireland, hitting number five. And the B-side of this single was Midnight Tornado. Track by track. So moving on to track six, Rattlesnake Shake. 
Not as good as Motley Crue, and definitely not as good as Fleetwood Mac's bluesy song of the same title. I don't really have a lot to say about this. <laughs> mm. People say that this is the filler and they don't like this song. It's a bit generic and it's a bit play by numbers rock and roll. I like this song. I think it's great. After 18 and Life and that angsty, oh, woe is me, life is miserable. Then they come in partying and doing a lot of Aerosmithy kind of rap style vocals and so this was yeah Sebastian Bach's homage and fromage to Messrs Tyler and Perry and I like this song it works well because of the melody lines that Bach probably wrote for this I think it's the bridge to the chorus much different to the rest of the song in fact so when okay. he says you're lost in search of passion dun, dun, dun. but Prince Charming ain't in fashion so let it bleed if you want it to die beautiful man thank you That brings us on to track seven. Side B, which, let's argue, is the better side. Side two, you've got Youth Gone Wild, Midnight Tornado, I Remember You. Yeah. Here I Am is a great song. And Making a Mess was played a lot by Tommy Vance. He liked that one. Making a m -m 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 mess of you. Youth Gone Wild, another great song from the album. This is a memorable anthemish rocker. This kicks off with big drums and a catchy riff and some bass gymnastics. There's a big sing-along chorus for the crowds with plenty of whoa, whoa, whoa. And you know what? If I was in the crowd for Skid Row, I'd still sing along with Gusto. I still feel like a youth gone wild. This is the call out to the disaffected youth of America at that time. Yeah. Scowling and angry and yet to paint your nails black and get into all emotional lads like the Black Veil Brides and My Chemical Romance. So the preceding school generation was just left with youth gone wild to realize that they were a community of disaffected mother fudgers. Good solo on this from Sabo. Big oh yeah, it's, re it's really well produced. This, squeal. this is when Wagner comes into his own as a producer. He makes that great compressed guitar sound. Heavy as hell. This was Skid Row's first single. It reached number 42 on the UK singles chart and number 99 on the US Billboard chart. The B-side for this was Sweet Little Sister. So these were two great songs on the first single and it didn't do much. It didn't make any impact. And for a band at their level, they should have been grateful for the opportunity to open for Bon Jovi on the huge Jersey Syndicate tour. And again, it's... it's Bastian didn't appreciate it. No, he didn't. But <laughs> it was like Guns N' Roses who were a bit infused with punk from McKagan's upbringing in Seattle. And they kind of had a punky attitude mixed with his glam rock. That also why people probably cotton on to Skid Row because they were a little bit of hock and spitting and roaring with melody and crunchy riffs. Track by track! Track eight is Here I Am, Sabo Bolin. Some macho guitars on this, and they start churning out a really good rhythm. This sounds like the riff that Mick Mars had on Something For Nothing on Girls, 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 Motley Crue's 1987 album. But this one, I like more. Ooh, Sorry, Mick. Better Sorry. than the crew. Sorry, Mick. Good Sonics, man. Good Sonics on this. Here I am. Uh, he's running around like Superman. Track it, Adrian. Track it. Track nine is Making a Mess. And this one has Sabo, Bolin and Sebastian back credited. So Sebastian finally gets a credit on this one. Uh, Making a Mess has a sharp, crunchy riff on it. Back spitting out the lyrics with lots of attitude. It's probably one of the fastest songs on the album. I like the lyric, T-Bone Billy, just singing the blues. Caught his lady with another man. Lit up a smoke and did some talking with the back of his hand. Yeah. Signed her walking papers, took the 515 to Kalamazoo. Great little song. Chugs along. 
It's credit to Michael Wagner again for his production on this. It's called Chunky Riffage. And we loved Chunky Riffage back then because we only had cassettes. We weren't listening to the vinyl on the big sound systems. We weren't audiophiles in those days. We had little stereos and cassettes. So this came through the speakers loud and clear. Chunky. Like you're eating a big bowl of Weetabix laced in Angel Delight. I don't think heavy rock is really uh, audiophiles music. But this Wagner dude, is he the same guy that was on X Factor? a couple of years ago and did really well but he couldn't sing I'm not sure that it was first of all I would never have let my eyeballs bleed and watch that (laughs) decrepitude he must make some metal chunky chunky like a monkey track 10 I remember you Sabo and Bolan Skid Row had performed the song live many times prior to recording the album and it was received favourably but they thought hard on including it on the album because they didn't want to be a chick band. Sebastian Bach felt it could be a big hit and eventually persuaded the band to include it on the album. He later claimed it was the number one prom song in the US in 1990 making a dance kids would remember. This and 18 and Life were the band's biggest hits but they didn't want to be remembered for love songs and so this prompts him to go ultra heavy on the follow up album Slave to the Grind. We spent the summer with the top roll down. Wished ever after would be like this. Ah. This song probably was a little bit maligned at the time as being this quintessential rock ballad. And as you've <laughs> always so said, many of them. as you've always said, that's the one thing that rock bands in the 80s could do. And that's what they wanted to do. Didn't get airplay and make some album sales and get the chicks turning up at their concerts so they could bang them on the bus. And there were so many to choose from. I love this song. I loved the song when I first heard it. And this song became synonymous with one of my early encounters with a relationship with a female that I actually met at a Skid Row concert in 1991 when they toured the Slave to the Grind album. When I was a slave to her grind. There was so many of these big ballads like Bon Jovi, I'll be there for you. White Snake is this love. Mm -hmm. I think it's similar as well to Bon Jovi, Never Say Goodbye. Every Rose Has Its Torn. I don't remember particular affection, but listening back to it, I do get a certain kind of nostalgia. I do remember it, and it's a a nice song. It is, and I think it's now when you listen to the lyrics and what it might mean for us when we were, what, 15 at the time, and now we're pushing whatever we're pushing. But for you, it like reminds you of your major formative relationships in your life. This is the one that takes me on a little little time tunnel tour back into the halcyon nostalgic days of nostalgia, of sitting there. In fact, while we're on this song, I can refer you to my diary. A little bit of information of what I wrote. The Secret Diary of Michael Taylor, aged 17 and a half. Monday the 11th of November 1991. Catch the bus at half past one. Going to see Skid Row and Love Hate Live in the Point Depot tonight. On my own. Walk all the way down to the concert. Meet and chat with lots of girls. And get off with two! Sinead Brannigan from Leakslip is 16 and a very nice blonde she was. As I sat on the usual red crash barrier nearest the stage, a group of girls came up to share the space. Two girls look at me and then say, Which one would you like to shift the most out of us two? I pick this blonde girl. We go out toward the exit of the point and up the steps to the bar, buy two watery harps and have a chat. We finish our beer and then go back down the steps. Before we go into the main area, we stop by the red velvet curtains and have a big snog. Then it's back inside to the crash barrier where the rest of our friends are. Sinead stands in front of me and leans into me as we wait for love-hate to come on stage. To my right, leaning beside me, is another lovely blonde. I say hello and ask her name. Nicola, she says. She has a lovely face with deep blue eyes. 
I did say later to Adrian that she looked like the blind one of the Little House on the Prairie <gasps> series. Adrian said she probably was blind. Very pretty, I say in the diary. Love, hate, come on. The crowd go wild. Sinead turns around and gets a lift onto my shoulders for a better view. I look at Nicola. She looks back. I move closer. So does she. We start to kiss as Sinead sits on my shoulders. Rock and roll, man. More like Mills and Boone. <gasps> Feels good. Sinead sees this and promptly gets off my shoulders. Nicola and I keep on kissing. Through most of the concert, I didn't see much of Skid Row. At the end of the concert, we say to meet each other in two weeks' time outside the amusement arcade on Westmoreland Street. We say goodbye. What a night. Jeez, I thought I was listening to a Mills and Boone audiobook instead of a podcast. When I was listening to this album this week, it brought back nice twinges. Ah, oh, that's good. <laughs> okay, uh, it's finished now. I'm over it now. Go on. I think that's the thing. I think music is so subjective. A lot of the music may be only okay, but if it reminds you of a really good time, you can put that piece of music on. It'll always bring you back. And I apologise if you're listening to this and you've nearly gagged. And you thought, this is a rubbish song and what's this twat going on about? Sorry, I apologise. But how it happened anyway was I Remember You was the third and final single from the album and reached number six on the US Billboard chart. The song also charted at number 36 on the UK singles chart and Make It A Mess was the B-side. And finally, we get to track 11, Midnight Tornado. This is credited to Sabo and Matt Fallon, the guitarist. It's an atmospheric mid-pace song. I think the intro is just begging for some massive clock bells. <laughs> Perhaps Skid Row were afraid of being too cliched. I doubt it. I like the dramatic, when the clock strikes, midnight, I'm on, on the, the chorus, for love. With the deep echoey vocal layers. And there's some absolutely demented vocals from Sebastian back on this one. Uh, when I was listening to the solo, I felt the start of it was, was going into some Eddie Van Halen-esque stuff. And there's a 50 second big outro of a heavy riff. And is it my ears deceiving me? Or can I hear the remaining chords of Enter Sandman in that? <laughs> Kirk, do you like Skid Row? The closing wail of Sebastian just seals this album. It's a great, you know, I'm alive. And it leaves itself tongue in your earlobes, which is kind of awkward because he's a six foot four human man. Androgynous looking man on, on the cover of this album, to be fair. It's a weird a thing. Pretty boy or a pretty girl. It's a weird thing when you look back, all right, that a lot of the bands that we were into and I had posters all over my room of all just <laughs> mostly lads in, with long hair and suede boots and tight jeans, stuffed socks in the crotch. <laughs> I don't know. But that shouldn't be a problem. People should be able to dress how they like and you shouldn't be judging people on it. Yeah, one thing, it didn't make me question my identity. To summarise the album, for me, what, what I discovered from listening to this again was Sebastian Bach's vocals. was the big take for me. We've talked about Axl Rose, we've talked about Bruce Dickinson. But, you know, Sebastian Bach is up there. Those other guys have distinctive sounds and Bruce is a great vocalist, Axel is a great vocalist, Bach is a great singer. And so much so that later he went on Broadway. And it was unfortunate for him that maybe Skid Row were not a little bit bigger. He, he never feels contrived in the songs. He has this kind of knack for knowing when to scream for that emotional punch. Even in the verses, he invents different little vocal melodies and attitudes with each line. A lesser it's singer like just Pete wouldn't... as well. Yeah, just he, to... He kind of becomes the character. He interprets it well, and the majority of those lyrics he didn't write, and yet he made them shine with his voice. And I don't think another singer would have done it as well, and it wouldn't have been a hit album. Definitely, no. I'm still in the, in the back camp when I think that Skid Row should reform, even though he's a mighty pain in the hole. He's it's got a, a touch of the axles about him, all right. He does, yeah. I remember the first time I seen him, I felt really jealous of him. He was an MTV Crips, flexing his copy of Amazing Fantasy 15. And it turns out he's a huge comic collector as well. But guess what? 
In August 2011, his New Jersey home was hit by a hurricane, Hurricane Irene. Now, luckily, his comic books did survive, and lots of other stuff he had there, like Kiss and Skid Row artifacts, including the master tapes of this album. But uh, yeah, eventually he was fired from the band, and the band claimed he was difficult to work with, which really means he spent a lot of time getting really drunk and irritating the rest of the band with his stupid behaviour. Now, Bach seems a little bit confused that this could be the case, and he claims that the band sent him a bunch of songs he didn't like, though he didn't want to sing them. He responds with, he thought that they would have a supporting tour with Kiss, I think at Madison Square Gardens, and he wanted that lads to play, but Dave yeah, said no. They didn't. And he was very annoyed, and he left a nasty phone message on Dave's phone. And Dave phoned him back and said, well, it looks like that you're without a guitarist now and hung up. And that was the end of that. That was it. And before we summarize the album, let's go to Kerrang! magazine, Britain's number one rock magazine Kerrang! from the 1980s. And what a year 1989 was for Skid Row within the pages of Kerrang! Their debut album they was... loved them, didn't mm, they? Their debut album was unleashed on January 24th in the United States. And there, a day earlier, is the first ever mention of the band on page four of Kerrang! issue 223. Guitarist Dave Sabo is pictured next to best New Jersey buddy boy John Bon Jovi. We're told that the Skids will tour with Bon Jovi and their debut album is to be released. And that's the first we ever hear about them in Kerrang! Just a picture with John and a new tour with John. No wonder they smelled like a contrived band at the time. Incidentally, Dave's nickname is The Snake. When he was 12, he had one big black hair on his chest that his classmates dubbed The Snake. And it stuck, much like the hair, which he never pulled out. Now it's the size of a mamba. And lo, on page 16 of the same issue, Phil Wilding reviews the eponymously titled debut album under the heading Slippery Customers. A dig at their instant-looking leg-up in the industry thanks to Mr. Slippery himself, John Bon Jovi. John Bon Jovi. Or John Bon Jovi, as Tommy would say on the Friday Rock Show. A 4.5k rating with the introduction, Friends in Real High Places. Hits us in the eyeball and two more paragraphs pondering how much Mr. John Bon helped the skids. Phil tells us that the album is like this. They kick in with a formula that is neither unique nor chrome shine new. Giant vocals, straight but skin snagging arrangements and a host of hooks that rise high and drag the standard of every song up with them. He also thinks that I Remember You is the strongest song on the album, Adrian. He's probably correct if he was a chick. Singer Sebastian Bach said he wrote all the vocal melodies and changes to improve on the Bowling Snake written demo, but Bach was pissed off that he wasn't given a writing credit on it for the whole album. Neither on 18 and Life with the same gripe. We sympathise with him on that, yeah. Phil rounds off his review telling us rather prosaically that Skid Row are the start of a massive clean-up operation. Skid Row, it's the last place you'll find them. I guess the good review writers were all out with the winter flu that week and Phil was the only lad left in the office to review the albums. Or maybe he was just getting the second tier albums. A first cover mention for the band followed two weeks later in issue 224, heralding a two-page interview phoned in by Eliane Halbersberg. Hmm. Four and a half hours of a chat with Sabo, Afuso and Bach reduced to a reused picture of Sabo with John Bon Jovi again and a band shot from the back cover of the LP and the struggle to avoid talking about John Bon Jovi's help. Drummer Rob assures us that hunger has been the key factor in Skid Row's regional and soon-to-be global success. Well, fair play to him. He knew. A month later, in issue 228, Skid Row are confirmed to support Bon Jovi in sunny June in the United Kingdom at what they predicted would be Wembley Stadium, but ended up being at a wet Milton Keynes in August as a substitute for the cancelled 1989 Monsters of Rock Festival at Donington in Leicestershire. 
In the next issue, 229, Skid Row is in the news. They're signing on to record Holiday in the Sun by the Sex Pistols to appear on the anti-drug Make a Difference Foundation album. Or Make a Different Drink Foundation, as it would soon to become known, as they went to play at the Moscow Peace Festival in August. All bands pissed as newts, arguing, fighting, vomiting, all in the name of Glasnost and Bon Jovi Skid Row manager Doc McGee's post-drug smuggling conviction atonement project. He had to get out of the country to stop being arrested. Yeah, he was a drug smuggler in Florida in the early (laughs) 80s and it's allegedly that's how he got the money to fund Motley Crue and Bon Jovi. Anyway, roll on to August 1989, issue 252. There's a sweaty Bon Jovi frontman on the cover with the skids popping up for a second cover mention. Inside, an interview on page six with Dave Sabo on the blower to Howard Johnson to discuss the joy of visiting Milton Keynes just off the A5 up from Luton, south of Newport Bagnall, incidentally home of the oldest working iron bridge in the country. Now... Howard Johnson says, What kind of a mate would John Bon Jovi be if he hadn't pulled a few strings for his buddy Snake? What kind of a fool would Snake have been if he hadn't accepted this helping hand? What would anybody else do in the circumstances? Muses. Howard. Dave answers that John only did the same as he did for Adrian's favourite band Cinderella. He saw us, he liked us, and he recommended us. We certainly have had a lot of help from him. Skid Row's music was owned back then, as Adrian said earlier, by John Bon himself. In Sebastian Bach's autobiographical book of scribbles, a tale is recounted where a drunk Bach is pinned to a dressing room wall by John. And we've talked about this earlier. It was John, John's brother Tony, and Dad Bon Jovi. (laughs) With John roaring in Seb's face, spittle flying that I own you! Indeed, flick through to page 31 of the same Kerrang! issue to the interview with mystery Slippery John himself. He spouts, With the skids, that was something I was working on for two years. If you look back on the back of their album, it says the New Jersey Underground. That's my company. They're signed to me. The Underground is a production company that supported them for two years. It's mine and Richie's company, right? We wrote songs with them, paid for studio time, paid the rent, hooked them up with managers, gave them lots of gear, and hey, it's working out for them. Good man, John. They'll make a statue of you yet in Sayreville, New Jersey. Currently, there's only actually the John Bon Jovi rest area, with the New Jersey Turnpike Authority renaming the Cheese Quake Service Area at exit 124 after John. This is I pro- feel a bit sorry for Skid Row because this whole thing has been hijacked by Bon Jovi. This should be like slippery and wet part two. This is probably a place you can sit, inhale exhaust fumes and tell everyone that you're a great lad. Back to Skid Row and the interview and Dave the Snake Sabo went on to say surprisingly that success hadn't changed him. No, no. And we all chortled at that naive admission. But Dave was excited to play Milton Keynes, as he tells it. Yeah, we're excited about coming to Britain. We've sold about five or six copies of our record. More importantly, Dave tells us that John Bon Jovi has told him what to expect in the UK. He's told me to expect loads of bottles of piss to come flying towards the stage. I'll have to catch one of those bottles and drink it. (laughs) That'll shut them up. In said same issue 252, there's a review of the Moscow Peace Festival. In Lennon Stadium. The Moscow Peace Festival. That's right. Broadcast on Sky TV for four and a half hours to the 20 people who had satellite dishes in the UK mm. in 1989. Reviewer Neil Jeffries yeah, yeah. wondered about the ethics of drug smuggler convict band manager Doc McGee's Make a Difference Foundation anti-drugs and alcohol shebang. Moscow was grim back then, with Ozzy Osbourne claiming that if he lived there, he'd soon be dead of alcoholism or from sniffing tires. But no worries for the anti-drink and drug bash. Sebastian Bach smuggled two big bottles of whiskey on the flight over, and drummer Tommy Lee of Motley Crue of the new T-Total, just say no, Motley Crue, secretly sidled up to Seb, said yes, and sank a mighty few sips of the sick stuff. Skid Row hit the stage at 1pm with Bach screaming, Shit this out, motherfucker!
A week later, in Kerrang 253, Skid Row have their third cover mention and a picture of sinewy Sebastian on stage at Milton Keynes. Inside, the gig is reviewed by Neil Jeffries again. That guy gets everywhere. Moscow, Milton Keynes. The man's a... He was the international correspondent. <laughs> Skid Row had 45 minutes to take the bowl by storm and they did just that. A triumphant UK debut, with Back having kicked everybody's ass into gear with his high-voltage blue-language raps. So worried was Jeffries that this effing and blinding might perturb poor wholesome vixen who would slap on the stage right after Skid Row. It seems, dear listener, that my co-presenter has gone for a slash. He's a little bit incontinent these days, is Adrian. Just went for a glass of water. Okay. Kerrang! 256 in September had the lads in the view from the bar section, wondering about the size of Sebastian's package. And after conferring with the ladies at Kerrang! HQ, honoured him with the Armadillo of the Year Award for his sock-stuffed scrotum straining behind his severely restricted shorts. Not just any armadillo, but a beast built to balance pint glasses full of beer on, even when sleeping. Kerrang! It's where worrying, it was at. Worrying the obsession with males' parts and then androgynous males appearing on the cover. It, it is a bit weird when you look back on it, isn't it? Listen, oh, as the communists said back then, the trouble is, you don't know what's coming yesterday. Kerrang! Quote! It's November! for reading Kerrang! It's Kerrang! issue 263, and the skids oh, are in the news. Kerrang. New single, Youth Gone Wild, is released in the UK and they'll be on tour across Blighty with Motley Crue, followed by a headlining tour. They'll also be doing a signing at London's Shades on November 10th. And there's for you some nostalgia listener, Shades in London. What was that, Adrian? Did they sell sunglasses? That's right. A fourth cover mention follows a week later in issue 264. News of the band about to blast the Hammersmith Odeon and a page big Youth Gone Wild single promo and Dave the Snake Sabo reviewing the singles with Ricky Warwick and Mo Berg. Now, extra points, Adrian, if you know which bands were led by those lads, Ricky Warwick and Mo Berg. Pass. Sorry. Ricky Warwick was the lead singer of The Almighty and Mo Berg was the lead singer of The Pursuit of Happiness. And do you know who The Pursuit of Happiness were? It was a movie with Will Smith, was it? Do you remember the song, I'm an adult now, I've got the problems oh, of an adult, on my head and on my shoulders and I'm an adult now. Whoa, whoa, whoa I'm yeah, an adult yeah, yeah. now. That song. I thought you were going to go into status quo there. <laughs> whoa, whoa, you're in the <laughs> army now. Anyway, Iron Maiden's Infinite Dreams is reviewed by the three lads and Dave Sabo saying he met Steve Harris last night and he loves the Maiden. This is like the Marvel Universe. They all <laughs> guest star on each other's podcasts. <laughs> Mo Berg decides that this is a dreadful song. It just doesn't give him a hard on. It's useless. Horrible. Ricky Warwick concurring. Hey, this is nothing for me. Mo Berg adds, so I'm not the only one that thinks this is first rate klutz music for baboons. Heap of tripe. No, 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 oh, there you no, go. No, no. I'd never heard of either of them, but sure, they're all entitled to their opinions. He liked Jamie's Got a Gun, though, and the cult's Edie Chow Baby, though. I, I do remember, but I can't. The, the tune doesn't go into my head. No. A week later in 265, Skid Row land their first Kerrang! cover. The skids are all right, it says. Ah, yeah. There's a two-page pick of the lads with Motley Crue on stage at Wembley Arena and a six-page spread chatting with Mick Wall hiding behind the sofa in Sebastian Bach's London Marble Arch Holiday Inn hotel room. This interview is made up of singer Sebastian Bach pictures and him shouting, leaping around, cussing every second word, hocking and spitting a lot on the carpet too. Uh, Mick draws our attention to this often. Talking about his love of pounding metal and Skid Row's general awesomeness. 
Mick tries to shoehorn a question about the band having allegedly signed over all of their royalties for the Skid Row album to Bon Jovi in return for putting them on tour and helping them out, and we discussed this earlier. And because Sebastian loves Kerrang, he decides to open the clacker valve and spews forth a tirade of truth on the matter, including the earlier mentioned fight when John Bon collared back and stared into his face screaming, I own you! They don't make him like this lad anymore, I'm afraid. And maybe that's the problem. As much as you don't or do like Sebastian, he was an entertainer. He'd no uh, filter. He'd no filter. Maybe he was autistic. Nearing the end of the biggest and best year in Skid Row's life is issue 266, a fifth cover mention and a Hammersmith Odeon gig review by Alison Joy. Was she happy? By fuck she was. Seb back took Rachel Bolin out, smashing him and his bass into the speakers, collapsing on the ground and postponing the that show for five minutes. Maybe, maybe this was the start of them disliking each other. Rachel Even was a dude. Even Steve Harris and Nico McBrain stumped up on stage for a steaming rendition of Rothschild at the end. <gasps> Leaving Alison dripping and gyrating in sweat and pseudocream as Youth Gone Wild pushed her right over the edge. Come back so soon, she said. And to round off the year, in the last Kerrang! issue of 1989, issue 270, Skid Row's snotty debut album makes it into number six in the top 20 albums of the year. That's it. Mostalgia. This is Moshtalja. Albums that we love. Albums that were very important to us when we were growing up. Right, so our closing <laughs> arguments for and against Skid Row's eponymously titled debut album, Skid Row. I would describe this as a nice, catchy and fun, yet I didn't realise it was as heavy as it was album. And it was all about drinking, screwing and fighting. It's a great little album, isn't it? All right. And if it wasn't for Sebastian Bach, it would have been in the bargain bin of Virgin Megastore. Yes, and we agree. Sebastian Bach is a great singer. <laughs> Probably not as good as Axel and Bruce or Dave Lee Roth, but a decent whale on him. If he was passing my house at 12 o'clock at night after a few beers coming out of Corner House and started singing, I would confuse him with the Banshee. There's another uh, funny you mentioned Dave Lee Roth. There's a great comment. I think it was in Bach's autobiography or I read, or read it somewhere else recently. Is that (laughs) I think it was Tommy Lee or Nikki Six of Motley Crue met Dave Lee Roth. I don't know if it was on tour or was in one of the clubs in LA. Proceeded to have a big fight and start punching Dave in the face. (laughs) 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 And I just have this image of Diamond Dave going, Yeah, what are you gonna do about it, Rockstar? And then Tommy comes in with the fists and baits the nose off him. Good times. But there is also a good quote from Sebastian about Dave Lee Roth and Axel Rose going out for a few drinks in the rainbow. And it turns up that Dave gets really pissed and then gets really bitter and he says, So I've got a couple of upstarts to my crown, yeah? And Axel gets all quiet and moody and says, I'm no fucking upstart. Fuck you, Roth. And storms out. And Seb backs in the middle going, What's going on? What's going on? And the next day, Dave faxes each of them a complimentary letter saying, you guys are the best young rock singers in the world. I love your voices. Go, kids. Hello. And that's it now. Adrian's wife has returned (laughs) and now he can no longer be allowed to use the musical equipment that he has in front of him on the breakfast table. A little ghost appeared. A ghost appeared in your your white room. Don't mess with it. Oh, my God. It'll fall on my head. My sofa. What the fuck? It's not a studio. It's my sofa. (laughs) So that was Skid Row. 
Would you consider a classic or do you think it's an okay one? Is it one you go back to? Of much? course, it's it's not a classic album that would appeal to everybody, but it appeals to me because it was at the right time in my life, in our lives. And it resonates with me as an album just because of the songs on it, going to their concert, seeing them live and meeting a girl, doing a bit of snogging, having a bit of a relationship. Yeah. I look back fondly and I enjoyed listening to it a few times this week in preparation for this show. Love a bit. Exactly. Of That's it. A great 80s rock album with some classic tracks on it and great for getting nostalgic too. That's it from us. But don't forget, Park Avenue leads to Skid Row. <laughs> Until next time, when we dig up another rock classic. Once when I go around the fish pond, running around really, really fast until I go back in time, find myself back in somewhere between 1988 and 1992, and pick up a CD randomly. We'll put it on the player. We'll see. Wow, let's get nostalgic to this one. Every day was full of potential, full of music, full of drama, full of games, full of ladies, full of want, full of hunger, full of desire, full of semen in the sock. It's still full of a lot of those things, Michael. It's still full of a lot of those things. Thanks for listening, and keep your hands in your pockets. Keep fiddling with your and balls. And stay nostalgic. That's it. Gluck. Gluck now. <laughs>